This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen, and today we're talking about Iran and the interaction between U.S. policy and Iran's pursuit of nuclear weapons. Joining me for this discussion are two experts, including Ellen Leipson, who directs the International Security Program at George Mason University's Sklar School of Policy and Government. She also led the Stimson Center from 2002 to 2015 and served in the U.S. government for 25 years. Welcome, Ellen. Great to have you on Deep Dish. Thanks, Brian. Glad to be with you. Also joining us for this conversation is Bob Pape, who's a professor of political science and director of the Chicago Project on Security and Threats at the University of Chicago. Welcome back to Deep Dish, Bob. It's great to have you. Glad to be here again, Brian. So both of you have been critical of current U.S. policy or aspects of current U.S. policy toward the Middle East. And I want to in this episode, really get your arguments out on the table and and work through um, what the implications are. So, Ellen, let me start with you. You've argued that Donald Trump has views foreign policy exclusively through a lens of economic self-interest and make the argument that this is misguided and, and, it, and it won't work. Before we talk about why you think the approach is flawed, um, I want to start out with just what is your analysis about when you conclude that Trump's policy is based on economic self-interest? What do you mean and what are the evidence of that? I think that uh, our president, who is not an experienced foreign policy person, draws so heavily on his own career in the business world that he perceives that all power relationships, whether they are from two people in the private sector or two leaders of nation states, is really about economic self-interest. So he has – he distorts – the broader mix of factors that affect international relations by believing that the way he interacts with foreign leaders or with foreign societies, publics, uh, parliaments, etc., is to define the zone of economic self-interest as if that will be sufficient to regulate and create stability in, in a relationship. So, you know, he, de- he certainly in the specific area of trade, it's it's self-evident that it's about economic self-interest. But I think in the politics of the Middle East region in particular, there's an absence of attention to history, identity, feelings of vulnerability, the quest for dignity and respect. Uh, and he believes that somehow satisfying the material interests of the other party, so long as the U.S.'s economic interests are addressed, is a formula for success. And so far in the Middle East, I don't see any evidence that it has produced the outcomes that he has sought. One of the things that I really liked about your piece, just to let you develop that a little more, is you talk about Iran and the Palestinian issue specifically. How do you see, briefly, how do you see this playing out, this strategy as shaping what he's doing with those two cases? So on Iran, he is not the first president to believe that economic pressures will be uh, very powerful tools in shaping the the way Iranian leaders weigh the pros and cons of engaging with the outside world. So to be fair, the use of sanctions, economic pressure, etc., has been tried before. But if we compare the Obama administration and the Trump administration on mixing, I would say that previous administrations understood that economic sanctions get you 
some way of the of the down this very difficult road to a a political engagement, but that you also have to provide to the Iranians some expectation of attention to their legitimate interests. Their legitimate interests are not just relief from sanctions. So I think that Trump creates a logic circle that will put economic pressure on, and the only incentive that we're providing the country is that someday there'll be relief from sanctions if they behave, as opposed to the approach that uh, President Obama and the Europeans and Russia and China took in the negotiations that produced the Iran uh, nuclear agreement in 2015, it was a very difficult and challenging and complicated mix of both economic pressures and political and even security-related uh, incentives. So that Iran had to walk away from the deal not only believing that there would be some relief from the economic pressures, but that the international community would recognize other legitimate interests that Iran had in demonstrating that it had mastered the fuel cycle in the case of producing a fissile material, etc., but that as a political statement, Iran was choosing to stop short of full weaponization and could be back in compliance with its obligations as a signatory to the Non-Proliferation Treaty. So it was that mix of political security and economic interests. President Trump expects total capitulation on the part of the Iranians. He wants to squeeze them and squeeze them and squeeze them economically so that their leaders are essentially humiliated and sort of defeated psychologically. And then in exchange, Iran will agree to do whatever we want them to do. I don't think that's the way international politics works, and I don't think it's the way uh, the very proud and experienced uh, Iranian regime uh, is likely to respond to that kind of pressure. Um, I just want to agree with a lot of what Ellen's saying, um, and I want to say that what I think we see with the Trump uh, President Trump is somebody who's looking for really grand and grandiose solutions um, to very, very difficult problems that have been around for many, many decades. Um, I think the policies, whether it's the maximum pressure policy against Iran or uh, some of the ideas with the Palestinians, they're very they're flamboyant, but I also think they're foolish. Um, and I think they're making problems worse, especially in the case of Iran. Um, and that's happening now as we speak. Um, and I think that the, uh, the overarching idea that um, uh, tough business bargaining, if we, if we come to the table with a tough business bargain, we can reach a grandiose solution to these uh, very difficult problems, is just fundamentally misguided. In business, uh, in real estate, um, you can approach 10 different uh, partners, and if nine of them uh, offer you a bad deal, you just walk away and you go to the one who offers you the best deal. In international politics, you don't have a choice of the partners. Um, Iran is the partner we have to work with. And if we walk away from a deal, that doesn't mean we can just go get some other deal from somebody else. So this is a fundamental uh, – international politics is, is, is about diplomacy. It is about deals. But it's a fundamentally different situation than a real estate 
great deal because you just simply can't dump your partner and then ignore them as if they did not exist. Um, and in the case of uh, international politics, when you walk away from actually pretty good deals, you often get a lot worse. And that's what we're seeing in the case of Iran. So um, President Trump, a little over a year ago, abandoned um, the nuclear deal that the Obama administration had put together with Iran. Uh, that nuclear deal um, uh, made it the case that uh, Iran was further away as a result of the nuclear deal from developing a nuclear weapon than it was before. Um, and now, uh, a year after President Trump has abandoned that deal, uh, Iran is back on the track, uh, drip by drip by drip and steadily toward getting closer to a nuclear deal or a nuclear uh, nuclear material uh, for that could be used for a weapon than um, was the case when Trump walked away. Uh, if we project out over the next six months, the next nine months, it's extremely predictable how the nuclear enrichment is going to proceed. Um, if anything, um, it could happen a little quicker than our predictions say. It probably won't be slower. And what that means is that President Trump has abandoned um, a pretty good deal for a lot worse situation that we face today. Uh, this is um, something that you would expect when you walk away from a good, a pretty good deal in the international environment. Uh, and again, I want to just come back to saying this is flamboyant. Uh, it's a great press conference, but it's extremely foolish and it's counterproductive for America's security interests. Brian, I wonder if I could follow up on one of the useful points that uh, Brian made, that th it is curious that the president who uh, cares so much about the sovereign rights of the United States, okay, that we're not going to share our sovereignty with anybody. His last speech at the UN was very strong on this point that we're just, we're all nation states, we're all going to look after our own self-interest, sort of against collective security, against some of the broad ideas of uh, international cooperation and pooling sovereignty for some greater global commons interest, etc. And yet he seems to be in unwilling or even unable to pause and think about the sovereign interests of other countries. If the world is just a Hobbesian world of mean-spirited, you know, nation-states mistrusting each other and just looking out for their own self-interest, um, he's never going to get the deals that he wants because other countries will, of course, uh, look after their own uh, interests. So on that question of sovereignty, he also seems to be um, unwilling or unable to factor in, uh, you know, what Iran's own interests as a nation state uh, are. And I, and, I, and I would just simply add, I think that um, uh, it's quite right to think of the Middle East um, and to think about Iran as um, a very important priority for American security. And within that, to look at an Iranian nuclear weapon as um, uh, and preventing an Iranian nuclear weapon as perhaps our most important priority in the Middle East. But if we once we see that, then we can see that the maximum pressure strategy to get Iran not to develop a nuclear weapon weapon has just been counterproductive and shows no signs of reversing itself. Um, I think the only way that we would have even a chance to reverse um, Iran's trajectory toward a nuclear weapon is to abandon the maximum pressure strategy. Uh, and even that, given how much uh, we have uh, poisoned uh, Iranian trust in American agreements at this point, I'm not sure there's much we can do to actually head off uh, Iran's um, either overt or 
covert development of nuclear weapons. Um, we have done a lot of damage to the idea that America will stick by its commitments and abandoning our word in this situation is really undermining our security interests in the Persian Gulf. So I want to just ask one follow-up question on this, which is, um, does the maximum pressure strategy and pursuing it um, change politically, change domestic politics in Iran in ways that could put Iran in a, on a trajectory um, toward nuclear weapons that's harder to engage later? We walked away from the deal, huge lost opportunity, but are we making things even worse by this particular strategy? So uh, it's clear that we have inflicted pain on your average apolitical Iranian citizen. I mean, the price of food is spiking. Uh, people are, you know, we to the extent that one can monitor, and Iran is not a particularly friendly environment for foreign journalists right now, but uh, to the extent that we're able to monitor it, um, Iranians are definitely suffering from the cumulative effect of sanctions, and then most recently, these even more punitive sanctions that the Trump administration has imposed. In the short run, people probably rally to their government feeling besieged and a sense of victimhood that almost consolidates a sort of sense of national purpose and shared victimhood, if you will. In the long run, it's possible that economic distress will create a kind of political um, instability in Iran. But when people are really hungry, they're not as likely to be out in the streets uh, protesting. And, you know, I, I think so far we believe there's some level of fatigue in Iranian society from actually trying to pull down the regime uh, that's that's been in power since, um, since the early 1980s. So, uh, you know, we, we say a lot about moderates and hardliners and trying to understand the, the factions in Iran. And uh, certainly some believe that the more moderate elements, uh, Foreign Minister Zarif, perhaps President Rouhani belongs in this category, have been damaged uh, during the Trump administration, that their credibility is down and that the hardliners are in ascendance. Uh, And so therefore the supreme leader doesn't face the delicate balancing act that he had in the past of trying to appease factions who had very different views of how Iran should behave in the international uh, community. So that now it sort of favors the hardliners. The fact that we've seen the Iranians acting out towards the British tanker, towards a Japanese oil tanker, etc., means that um, for now, somebody's giving them permission to to really push back against this isol- this you know extreme pressure that they're facing what i take from that and and bob will have views on this as well is that in a way the current situation is that our deterrence of iran is eroding the iranians are feeling more empowered to kind of lash out in retaliation against punitive measures that have been imposed on them and from my perspective, the thing that is highest priority for the United States is to reassert and reestablish our deterrence. Deterrence has worked for a very long time. The U.S. military presence in the Gulf has essentially prevented the Iranians from doing anything particularly aggressive towards us. And it, we, I feel like we're in a moment when all bets are off and some really scary things are happening. So so my uh, work on – my academic work has studied economic sanctions for over 20 years. 
Um, so I've studied, for instance, every instance of economic sanctions in the 20th century. That's 115 incidents. I've studied many since uh, uh, over the last 20 years as well. Um, and what we see is that economic sanctions rarely achieve ambitious goals like causing states to abandon weapons of mass destruction programs or toppling a regime. Um, this actually happens less than about 5% of the time. Uh, now, economic sanctions can do a lot um, for uh, in, in a trade deal. They can also do a lot to get hostages released. So I don't want to say they never achieve anything uh, whatsoever, but it's really quite rare for economic sanctions to produce uh, the major success that Donald Trump is asking of sanctions to produce here. And in fact, rather than succeed, we tend to see two different types of outcomes of these maximum pressure campaigns. Uh, number one, as, as Ellen was just explaining, is we, sent, we tend to see the hardliners get an even tighter grip on the population. That's partly because the population is so exhausted and hungry that they don't kind of have the energy to revolt and topple. But it's also because as the economy shrinks, the government that's in power has still has control over the flows of internal economic resources. So they can take resources away from groups that don't support them and give it to their supporters. Um, and what that does is it means that suddenly people have even more reason to want to support this hardline government uh, than they did before. But there's a second outcome that happens when you put on heavy maximum pressure, which is lashback. Uh, the big example of lashback was when we put on oil sanctions on Japan in July 1941. We had no idea when we put those oil sanctions on Japan that that was going to precipitate Pearl Harbor. But that's exactly what it did. Uh, we have the documents now that Admiral Yamamoto, who led the raid on Pearl Harbor, uh, switched his vote. He used to be opposed to the raid before the oil sanctions, and then he switched to supporting the, uh, the Pearl Harbor attack and leading it because the oil sanctions directly threatened the security of uh, Japan. This wasn't just about dollars. This was about Japanese security. And what Donald Trump is effectively asking uh, the Iranians to do is to abandon their interests in securing their own country. Um, this is very unlikely to work. And what you're seeing, and Ellen just ticked off a number of specifics, um, is it's producing lashback. Um, so this is very unlikely to succeed. At best, it may simply fail passively. But at worst, this could fail catastrophically, sucking us into a quagmire and a bigger set of problems than we have today. And this is, um, uh, this is just uh, incredibly uh, flamboyant on Donald Trump's part and also uh, foolish um, because we are risking uh, a much worse set of uh, costs for American security for very little likelihood of gain. So I want to ask about this kind of pa possible pathways that could lead to uh, violent conflict. And there are a couple that occur to me. Um, one is um, that uh, Iranian action, uh, you know, some of the attacks on tankers in the in the region and other actions, actually um, trigger a military a military response. Uh, certainly, that's what uh, Donald Trump uh, threatened um, a little earlier. Um, I guess last month, uh, which didn't come to pass in that case. How real a possibility is it that? Um, that we could end up in violent conflict through a through a pattern like that where Iran does act out and that triggers a U.S. military response or some other 
pattern of escalation. Yeah, so I would say there's really two pathways of escalation here. One is uh, escalation through inadvertence or miscalculation or accident. Uh, and that's what we saw with uh, the potential for, for escalation through accident is what we saw with the drone incident um, just about a month ago. Uh, what we saw is that um, uh, whether it was miscalculation on the part of the, uh, the Americans who put a drone a little too close to Iranian space uh, uh, or whether it was miscalculation on the part of some lower level uh, uh, um, uh, officer in the, on the case of Iran, uh, we almost had um, a, um, a drone incident escalate into serious loss of life, which could have had um, put us on the slippery slope to real escalation. That kind of miscalculation is going to happen when you have essentially uh, combat forces so close together and so poised next to each other. Uh, that is that really is risky, and we are at risk of that going forward. But there's another possible situation, such as um, Iran may feel that it will come under such great uh, security pressure that it needs to send us a real brushback pitch. Uh, that's what happened with Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor was supposed to be a brushback pitch, which was supposed to care, scare us away. Well, what would that look like in this case? This might look like a real attack, a missile attack on IUD Air Base um, in um, uh, just outside of Doha in Qatar. So uh, my work has not just been on economic sanctions, Brian, but as you know, I've studied air power for 30 years. I've taught for the U.S. Air Force. Um, some of my former students from the Air Force have, have been commanders at IUD Air Base. I was just there as recently as a year and a half ago. We have thousands of troops there. Um, um, they are um, uh, uh, a, a possible target here. Um, and so one way that we could see a, a future escalation would be an attack on IUD Air Base. And that, um, I'm afraid I can see this from Iran's perspective. They might think of this as a brushback pitch. But this uh, would also look like Pearl Harbor from our perspective. We we would be incredibly angry um, if that were to happen. So, Brian, let me add uh, two other thoughts. One is I think it's possible that the Iranian provocations in the Strait of Hormuz, if in fact they are all attributable to Iran, was Iran signaling not necessarily to the U.S., but to the rest of the international community. The fact that it was a Japanese tanker, I believe that Iran, one of Iran's moves right now is to get the rest of the world to try to revalidate the JCPOA, the 2015 agreement. I think the Iranians are quite desperate for the Europeans and other interested parties to either, you know, try to cajole the Trump administration or independent of the Trump administration to give Iran enough reason to stay in compliance with that JCPOA. So that's sort of a retrospective analysis of, of what we've seen in recent weeks. But if we go to the future and we see Iran steadily violating the provisions of the JCPOA in some kind of incremental escalatory way because it no longer f considers itself bound by the JCPOA, then I think it will trigger an, an American, you know, consideration of military contingencies um, to punish Iran and to try to essentially destroy any of that activity that could lead to actual weapons production. I think there will be an argument in the U.S. administration that it's our responsibility 
to prevent Iran from crossing any significant nuclear thresholds, nuclear weapons thresholds, and that therefore that you could imagine a justification uh, for the use of force. Um, then we get back to the question of what's the purpose of that military action? Is it to destroy a, a facility in a very you know discreet way and then stop? Or is it the beginning of a regime change strategy that we know at least some of the president's advisors uh, really prefer? Uh, so we know that the president is under some pressure and that he has said internally contradictory things about whether the U.S. is willing to deal with this Iran or whether our real belief that U.S.-Iran relations will only be normalized when there's a different set of people in power in Tehran. So, I, you know, we could be facing over the next year or two. Personally, I think the president has no, no real appetite for large-scale military action, um, particularly in an election year. But I think, in general, it's not his preference. So we'll have to see how this plays out. But we now have a level of uncertainty about whether these provocations are misinterpreted or lead to uh, the other parties to respond in a way that creates uh, that that escalation of violence that uh, could lead to very catastrophic outcomes. Yeah, so so fundamentally what we're, Elle and I are agreeing on is we're on a collision course with Iran. We're not sure whether that collision course is going to happen through accident or through deliberate action, but at the moment we are on a collision course because uh, we have taken steps to abandon the nuclear agreement, which is now putting Iran on the course of, re of enriching its uranium again, and they'd be very foolish not to want a nuclear weapon. So as we go forward, we are on a collision course. The question is, can we build off-ramps? So what are the possible off-ramps here? So off-ramp number one is we let the Europeans bail us out. So the Europeans, uh, France in particular, um, has been making a lot of efforts um, to try to essentially rescue the what's left of the nuclear deal to come up with some kind of trade agreements which can still allow... Um, which can um, uh, soften the uh, maximum pressure, uh, economic pressure on Iran, uh, and get, and have Iran to keep within the limits of the uh, uh, of the nuclear deal. The Trump administration uh, heretofore has been basically um, trying to nix all those efforts. Well, we could just essentially allow those efforts to go forward and stop. Really, we could still complain verbally, but we could just let them go forward, and that would be one off ramp. Another off ramp is that we could encourage Iran to. Um, as it enriches its nuclear, uh, uh, it enriches uranium uh, past the limits to sell that newly enriched uranium to uh, China, to Russia, um, and basically um, um, for vast amounts of money so that this too would be a way to off uh, and a possible off-ramp um, to this collision course. But one way or another, we need to develop, we need to see that there's only one way off a collision course. We need an off-ramp, and we need to start thinking about what those off-ramps would be. Ellen, do you see other possible off-ramps for this situation? Well, I think maybe one area that perhaps Bob and I don't see eye-to-eye on is whether the Iranian leadership is almost certainly going to say we need nuclear weapons. Um, I still reserve some degree of, uh, you know, doubt that, um, that they do see the downsides and the disadvantages of crossing the threshold of being a nuclear weapon state. Um, 
you know, some Iranian diplomats and people can be very cynical about whether these Iranian diplomats are manipulating us or trying to sweet talk us into believing things that may not be true. But some Iranian diplomats have actually used another Japan analogy, not the World War II Japan analogy, but the post-World War II um, decision by Japan to uh, forego any nuclear weapons. Many Iranians perceive that the Japan model is uh, is kind of a good model for them, which is to demonstrate to the international community that they have the brain power indigenously. They have they've mastered the technology to go to a weapons program, but as a matter of policy choice, they do not authorize a a full scale weapons program. But they, they win some leverage, they win some power in the international community by demonstrating that they have that capability. And they reserve the right in extremis if they were to feel that, that there was an existential threat to their survival, uh, they could then mobilize and accelerate a, a full-scale program to go all the way to weaponization. So I, I, so I appreciate the off-ramp discussion because I think among the off-ramps is to acknowledge that to have Iran's leaders reassure the international community that a full weapons program is not their intention and that they are you know, trying to get our attention, but their, their number one preference is to go back into compliance with the agreement. So that's a good place for us to bring this conversation to a close. And what I want to do is ask you both to uh, share with our listeners as they're watching events unfold uh, vis-a-vis Iran and the U.S.-Iran relationship, in order to understand what direction we're going, um, what should they pay most attention to? To really understand, uh, is this headed toward conflict or is it headed to one of these other uh, more hopeful scenarios? Um, I think the thing that I'm tracking, Brian, is just one and only one thing, which is simply the enrichment curve. Uh, So there's a lot of political things to track, such as uh, Europe's behavior. uh, Does Trump fire um, his national security advisor, Bolton? So there's there's many things. But I think at the end of the day, the collision course um, before when we had the nuclear agreement, Iran was not enriching that uranium. Uh, When we abandoned the nuclear agreement, it took about a year, but Iran has started to enrich the uranium. Uh, And those curves, your listeners can go on websites and they can see the curves and they can see that somewhere around November or October, um, uh, in December, this is going to get very, very uh, uh, dicey. And that's what I'm tracking. So I'm interested in the international diplomacy around this, whether the IAEA can keep a channel of communication open with Iran that will be at least partially productive, uh, whether the other allies that are now, I think, realizing they have to take more responsibility in the Trump era because the United States has now demonstrated that it's not a particularly reliable or steady partner. So whether other countries, and it could be China and Russia talking to Iran, it could be the European Union trying to figure out ways to um, relieve Iran from some of the sanctions pressure in order to keep them in compliance. So I guess I think there's lots of moving parts here, uh, and people should look at the international level just trying to decode what are the Iranians thinking or what are their intentions is is not going to be sufficient, I would say. 
So thank you both for really a fascinating conversation and a help for us to understand what to pay attention to moving forward. Ellen Leipson of George Mason University and Bob Pape of the University of Chicago, thank you both so much for being on Deep Dish. Yeah, great thank to be you. here with you. Thanks. And thank you for tuning into this episode of Deep Dish. If you like the show, do me a favor and tap the subscribe button on your podcast app. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs, wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you think you know someone who would also enjoy today's episode, please take a moment and tap the share button and send it to them as well. I'd like to invite you to join our Facebook group, Deep Dish on Global Affairs, where you can ask guests follow-up questions about anything you heard today or submit questions for upcoming guests and episodes. That's Deep Dish on Global Affairs on Facebook. And as a reminder, the opinions you heard today belong to the people who express them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Our audio engineer for this episode is Andy Zarnecki. I'm Brian Hansen, and we'll be back soon with another slice of Deep Dish.